Well, tonight we're going to be concluding our survey, hopefully, of the New Testament. Let me remind you where we've been in this uh, as we've looked at the, the great story of the Bible. We started out looking in the Old Testament and trying to understand the story of the Old Testament. And, and we told you about the nine different eras of the Old Testament period. And uh, if you were not here during that time or you've lost your notes, I'll be happy to provide you a copy of that outline of the nine eras of the Old Testament. And as we worked our way through the Old Testament, then we went to the New Testament, spent a little bit more time there than we did in the Old Testament. Uh, we began talking about the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels, and try to paint a picture of what each Gospel's purpose is and so forth. And we talked about the Gospels from different perspectives of the Synoptic Gospels versus the Gospel of John and the stories that they told. And so that was a couple of weeks ago. And then last Sunday, we talked about the Pauline epistles, the, the letters of Paul and uh, all the writings of Paul, the 13 writings or letters of Paul. And today, then, we come to the final section, which is essentially the general epistles, though we will also be talking about the book of Hebrews and uh, the book of Revelation. Now, if you have an outline, look at the introduction there. A brief introduction I wrote, it said, Since the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation have distinctive genres, and the 13 letters of Paul form a natural collection, the remaining books of the New Testament are grouped into a catch-all category called the general epistles. Now, now, remember the five divisions. Let's try to put all this in perspective, the five divisions of the New Testament. You begin with the Gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, which is historical. Gospels and Acts are both historical documents. So it's the Gospels, it's Acts, the Pauline epistles, then the general epistles, and then the apocalypse of the book of Revelation. So those are the five different categories, if you will, of the New Testament. So we're going to be talking tonight primarily uh, about the general epistles. And notice on your notes, I put there, first of all, summary of the general epistles. Uh, by the way, the general epistles, if you're reading something and trying to read a little bit more beyond what we're doing tonight, and you see the term the Catholic epistles, don't let that throw you. Uh, the word Catholic is from the Greek word uh, Catholicos, and it means really universal. It's not talking about, in this context, it's not talking about Catholic doctrine, it's not talking about the Catholic Church, but it's talking about the general or the Catholic or the universal letters is what we're talking about there. So in case you do some study and see that word, I want you to be familiar with that term. Again, not talking about the Catholic Church. Uh, so put this on your notes and follow along carefully. We'll walk through these books. Uh, when we're talking about the general epistles, these are letters that are not written to a specific person or church. Put that on your notes. The general epistles are not written to a specific person or church. Their audience is, for the most part, Christians in general. That's the term. Uh, now, the general epistles are essentially all the letters that were not written by Paul. That's another way to, to describe this group of letters. It's letters not written by Paul. Uh, although some would say that Hebrews was written by him, and we'll talk about that in just a, a few moments. Like the letters of Paul, the general epistles are arranged in the New Testament from the longest to the shortest. When you look at the last three letters of the general epistles, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, all of those are essentially one chapter. Really, there are no chapters in those letters, just verses uh, uh, as divisions. So uh, just like the apostles, uh, or Apostle Paul's letters, the general epistles are from the longest to the shortest. Now, one interesting distinction between Pauline epistles and the general epistles is this. Uh, it's how they're named. 
the Pauline epistles, put this on your notes, the Pauline epistles or the Pauline letters are named for their audience. Give me an example of one of the letters that Paul wrote, any letter. All right, Romans and Timothy, good examples. Romans is, a, is named for the church at Rome. Timothy is named for an individual Paul was writing to. So when Paul wrote his letters, all of his letters are named for the audience, either a church or an individual. The general epistles are named for their authors. Put that on your notes. The general epistles are written, or named rather, for their authors. And the four authors are these. James, Peter, John, and Jude. Those are the four authors who wrote the letters of the general epistles. Now here's what I'd like for you to do. I want your participation, so go ahead and open your Bibles to the table of contents table of contents and look under the New Testament. If you'll find it under the New Testament, the the letter of Philemon. Philemon would be the last letter, of course, in in the arrangement of Paul's letters. Uh, The the shortest, therefore the last one, since Paul's letters went from longest to shortest. And then we have the letter of Hebrews. We'll talk in just a minute about what Hebrews is. And then we get to the general letters, the general epistles, if you will. Uh, James, and then Peter, writing two of those. John, writing three. And then Jude. So those would be... So how many letters is that in total, class? How many letters total is that? Did anybody say seven? All right, so you got seven letters. How many letters are in the Pauline epistles? Thirteen. And you've got seven letters in the general epistles if you don't include uh, Hebrews. Now, let's talk about Hebrews for a moment. You've got your, your note sheet there. And I've just given you some blanks to write in things that seem significant to you. Write this down, though there is no blank for this. But, but write this down. Hebrews is one of the two greatest theological writings of the New Testament. It's one of the two greatest theological, that's a key word, one of the two greatest theological writings of the New Testament. The other one being the book of Romans. By the way, this is one of the reasons I feel like that Hebrews was written by Paul. But that's just, that, that's certainly up for debate. But it's one of the two greatest theological treatises in the New Testament. Romans and Hebrews. If you could take, if you could just understand two books in the New Testament, you could study and understand the book of Romans study and understand the book of Hebrews you will, you will understand the essential doctrines of, of the New Testament and the doctrines of salvation now as we said the author of this letter does not identify himself some certainly have suggested Paul you might find this interesting for about 1200 years now 1200 years is kind of a long time isn't it for about 1200 years the book of Hebrews was called the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. That's the way it was known, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. From the years 400 to 1600 A.D., that's the way this letter was was known, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, However, we won't get into why that changed, but other suggested authors are Apollos, Barnabas, Priscilla, and others. I like Origen, who was a theologian of the 3rd century, uh, he, he said it best. Everybody listen to this. You ready? This, this is profound. Origin of the 3rd century, a theologian of the 3rd century said, 
Only God knows who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> so that's that's where we land, and that's we we're not going to take a lot of time discussing this. Uh, this is the only anonymous book in the New Testament. Hebrews, the only anonymous book in the New Testament. It was written approximately 65 to 70 A.D. Now, one of the reasons we know it was probably written 70 A.D. or earlier is because there's no references to the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So, uh, we believe it was probably 65 to 70 A.D. Now, let's dig into it a little bit. Get your Bibles, go to Hebrews. Let me tell you a little bit about this book before we read some of the verse, some of the verses. This book was written primarily, write this down, written primarily to Jewish converts who were familiar with the Old Testament and who were being tempted to revert back to Judaism or to Judaize the gospel. Now what what do I mean by Judaize the gospel? To Judaize the gospel is to try to blend elements of Christianity and Judaism. And so this letter was written primarily to Gentile believers, Gentile, I'm sorry, Jewish converts who were familiar with the Old Testament and being tempted to revert back to their faith, their former faith of Judaism. And the theme of this book, write this down, the theme of this book is this, Christ is superior, underline that word superior, Christ is superior to the Old Covenant under Moses. Now, if you'll just hang with me for a moment, some of this is going to come to life for you, I believe. You see, in in the Old Testament, and the Jews who, who would look at the Old Testament in the New Testament days, when they would look back at the Old Testament, they would say, well, we have the Word of God from Moses. The writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus is the living Word of God. And they would say, well, well we have a high priest given by God. The writer of Hebrews would say, Jesus is the superior high priest. Those Jews would say, well, we have sacrifices divinely instituted by God. Sacrificial system. And of course, the writer of Hebrews would say, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So the theme is that Christ is superior to everything that the Jewish faith has to offer. Now, Here's what I want you to think about. Why? I want you to talk to a neighbor about this. Why was it important to write to these Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, I should say, why was it important for these Jewish Christians to know what was in the book of Hebrews? Why was it important to write that letter to them? Why did they need the letter of Hebrews? Why did they need the letter of Hebrews? Talk to a neighbor, see if you can come up with an answer. You may not have a clue, but maybe you've got some ideas you can share with the group here. I'm going to give you about 30, 45 seconds. Ready, set, go.
Okay. If Hebrews was written primarily to converted Jews, why did they need this letter called Hebrews? Give me some answers. Okay. Very good. Somebody else? So they wouldn't drift from their faith. That's right. Good. Right? Absolutely. That, that was going to be one of the last sta- statements I make about this book, but absolutely on target. Somebody else? Say that again. Right. Why go back to that? Any others? I want you to think about this. Sometimes, uh, I know I'm guilty of this, perhaps you are as well. I want you to think about what it must have been like to live in that day and time as a Jew who has converted to Christianity. Now try to get this in your mind. You're living in a time when the temple is still standing. You're living in a time where your friends, perhaps your relatives, are still following the Jewish faith. And you are facing a real dilemma. Imagine being a Jew who has embraced Jesus as Messiah temple is still operating. The priests are still offering sacrifices, divinely instituted sacrifices, at the divinely instituted temple. Uh, they, they're doing what they've done for centuries. And to complicate the matter, as you watch your Jewish friends and relatives go to the temple to once again offer sacrifices and to worship God, to complicate the matter you, as a, as a Jew who has become a Christian, you are experiencing persecution. But the persecution is not coming from Rome. Not, not initially. The persecution is coming from fellow Jews. Jewish believers who believe that you are out of your mind. Jewish believers who believe that you are desecrating the temple. That, that you are, are talking about a fact that we, that there is another sacrifice other than the ones being offered at the temple. I mean, this would be a hard time for these people to be followers of Christ. So, the temptation. The temptation was this. Maybe we need to back off a little bit. Maybe we need to compromise a little bit. Maybe we need to revert back to Judaism. I mean, the temple is still still there. I mean, they're still offering sacrifices. It would be hard, wouldn't it? If all you've ever known was the temple, the priest, and the sacrifices, and all of a sudden you follow Jesus, and all of that is almost insignificant now to you. I don't know if you've watched the AD series, uh, but I think it was last Sunday night when, when they were showing... Paul and the apostles kind of wrestling with this very idea? Was that last Sunday night, those of you who watched it? Wasn't it last Sunday night when 
Paul and, and others, Peter, whoever it was, some others, uh, they, they were basically talking about, well, we need to do this, we need to go to the temple, we need to offer sacrifices. And Paul was the one, at least in the A.D. series, who was saying, why do you need to do that anymore? Why do you need to go offer those sacrifices? Sacrifice has already been made in Jesus. And so I just want you to understand that what is clear-cut for us was not so clear-cut in the early days of Christianity. And so let's read a little bit. Don't have time to read a lot, but a little bit in this book. Uh, go to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days... Now, now some, sometimes I catch myself referring to the author as Paul. I might have done that just a moment ago. Uh, that's, just, that's just my guess. Again, the authorship officially is anonymous. But whoever wrote this says, verse 32, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, that is, after you had come to faith in Christ, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. That is, when you came to faith in Christ, it was not an easy decision. When you came to faith in Christ, you had to pay a price. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were being so treated. That is, either you or people you knew were being mistreated and being persecuted simply because they are followers of Christ. Verse 34. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Remember, now compare. Compare verse 32 to verse 35. Remember those earlier days. So he's talking about the earlier days. When you had this great faith, this determination, you were mistreated. You were willing to, to joyfully surrender your property. Remember those earlier days when you first came to faith in Christ, how certain you were of who he was. So, verse 35. Now, present tense, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That's a very small portion, of course, of this entire letter, but I think you get the picture the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage those who are followers of Christ to continue to follow him and not to revert back to the Jewish faith because what they have found in Jesus Christ is far superior to everything else that Judaism offers. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who forgives our sins by offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And this is my last statement on Hebrews. These Jewish Christians were not following a new faith but the perfection of the faith of their ancestors. That's what the book is all about. The right of Hebrews is saying, listen, this is not a new faith. 
This is the perfection of the old faith that you've been following from the days of the Old Testament. This, this is not a new idea. This is the perfection, the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had talked about and prophesied. So that's the book of Hebrews as we talk about the general epistles. Let's go on to the book of James. Just turn the page a few pages. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll come to the book of James. Now, talk to me for a minute. Tell me who the author of James is. Who, and if you don't know, you can guess or you could look in your Bible and probably find it out. Who is the author of James? <laughs> I'm sorry. Who, let, let me try, let me ask the question a little better. What is significant about James? Yeah, he, he's technically the half-brother, though I think it would be okay to call him the brother. But, but he's the half-brother of Jesus. And he's a leader in the New Testament church. Put this on your notes. James was probably written about 45 to 50 A.D. It was written for, for first-century Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, what's that next word? Scattered among the nations. James was writing for first century Jewish Christians living not in Jerusalem, but outside of Palestine. Those who had been scattered because of the persecution, scattered among the nations. Now James writes in a way that is very, very practical, uh, he focuses largely on conduct. Put this on your notes. James focuses largely on conduct rather than creed. James is more concerned with how you behave rather than what you believe. So James is a very practical book. And in fact, when I'm telling people who are just trying to get started in Bible study, uh, one of the books I suggest is that they start in the book of James. You might want to write this down. James was probably one of the earliest letters written written within 15 years of Christ's resurrection. So one of the, if not the earliest letter written, uh, written very close to the resurrection. But his whole concept is this. Uh, James wants to make sure you live out what you say you believe. Now let me go back to the authorship for just a moment. You said that he was the brother or technically the half-brother of Jesus. There's something very interesting about that to me. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who, who study your Bible, could you tell me, please, when did James become a believer? In Jesus Christ. After the resurrection. Let, let me put it to you this way. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the Messiah? <laughs> but wouldn't that be wouldn't that be something if, if your brother claimed that he was Messiah? It's it's very interesting. If if you want to study the gospels, you can read it for yourself. Very interesting that Jesus' own family didn't believe him. So, of course, Mary, I'm sure, did. But of his brothers and sisters, many in his own family did not believe he was Messiah. 
In fact, it says in the Gospels, they came one day to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. But now, after the resurrection, James, the brother of Jesus, sits down and he writes this short letter, relatively short letter. And he said, listen, if you're going to believe him, you need to live like you believe in him. So that's the thrust of the letter of James. A short, practical letter. James is interested in your behavior more so than what you say you believe. All right? So go on over to the book of First and Second Peter. I know we're just barely touching the surface on those letters. I'm just trying to give you an understanding of how the puzzle pieces fit together. So we come to First and Second Peter. Of course, the author, since these letters are named uh, for the author, the, the, uh, the author of, of this letter and Second Peter is Peter, the most famous, perhaps, disciple of Jesus. Perhaps we, maybe we should say the most prominent disciple of Jesus. Uh, look who he was writing to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So if you were to take the time and pinpoint those places on a map, what you would see is this. Peter, much like James, is not writing to people in Judea. It's not writing to people in Palestine. He's writing to Christians who are outside of that area. And, and much like some of the other letters we're going to see, he's writing to people who have experienced persecution. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me show you something. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and following. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but blessing because of this you will be you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, look at verse 13. Who is going to... What's that next word? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer... For what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for our sins, once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. When you start looking at these letters and putting the pieces together, you'll see, especially in the general epistles, this constant theme of, you're going to suffer. Or, you are suffering, and you should not see it as something strange. 
or even in the face of suffering, you need to be faithful. And I bring that up to say to you and to remind me, we don't know what it's like in America. We don't know what it's like to truly pay a price to follow Christ. By and large. Now, some of, there may be some exceptions. But by and large, we don't know what it's like to really pay a price. But can I say this to you? Listen, listen. That's normal Christianity. Now, we're blessed because we live in the United States of America. And the day may come when we may start paying a price. But, but it's normal Christianity to suffer for what you believe. Listen, from the earliest days of the church, they experienced persecution. From the earliest days of the church, what they believed caused them to go to prison or to experience beatings. From the earliest days of the church, they had to pay a price to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So my point is this. It should not surprise you. Persecution is happening all around the world against Christians. That that has been true since its earliest days. In fact, right right down these dates, First uh, Peter was written about sixty five A.D. First Peter was written about sixty five A.D. And then Second Peter was written about sixty seven to sixty eight A.D just before his death at the hands of Nero. Peter, Simon Peter, wrote Second Peter about 67 and 68 A.D., just before his death at the hands of Nero. And one of the last things that he wrote about was the dangers of false teachers. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 20, Second uh, Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse chapter 2. But there were, but, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter is saying, I want you to be careful. I want you to understand that in these days of persecution in which we are living... Not only will you experience persecution, but the second thing you will experience is false teachers. They, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. And he goes on to describe uh, some more of of what's going to happen. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. 
Dear friends, this now is my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you understand. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? And ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But deliberately forget that long ago, God's word through God's word, uh, the heavens existed and the earth was formed uh, out of water and by water. Skip down, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Just want you to understand, First and Second Peter was written where Peter was saying, you're going to experience persecution, you're going to be facing false teachers, and, but remember the end is coming, and God is going to bring it all to a conclusion. Then we go quickly, if you will, uh, we go to the books of First, Second, and Third John. First, Second, and Third John, uh, who would you guess wrote this book? Oh, <laughs> The author of all three is John, the apostle, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, and the same one who wrote the book of Revelation, one of the closest disciples of Jesus. Uh, I, all I'm going to read in First John is the first couple of verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. I love, love, love the first few verses of First John, chapter 1. John says, beginning, here's how he begins his letter. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John is saying, listen, listen, listen. This is not something I heard somebody who heard somebody who heard somebody who heard somebody. This is not something I've kind of thought up and wondered and, and kind of dreamed of. John says, I want you to know that I knew Jesus. I want you to know... I knew him personally. So John says, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John was confronting Gnosticism in his day. We won't get into that. But Gnosticism said he wasn't really real. He just looked like he was real. John says, oh, no, 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 no. We heard him, yes. But we saw him, yes. But we touched him with our hands. Verse 2, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John emphasizes light 
love and life. Jesus is the light of the world. He is love and he and he is life. Uh, you can study that and find that first, second, third John. Uh, let me go quickly to the book of Jude. The book of Jude was written in the 80s, early 80s A.D., not exactly sure of the exact date. It was written by another brother or half-brother of Jesus. If you go to Jude, again, there's only one chapter. Go to Jude, uh, look at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, let's talk for a moment real quickly. Why, do you, why don't you think, listen, if Jesus was my brother, don't you... If he was your brother, don't you think you might mention you you might drop that name a little bit? You know, I mean, if if uh, if Elvis Presley was your brother, somewhere in conversation with people, you'd probably let people know Presley, Presley. You're, you'd probably let people know there's a connection, right? I mean, if if one of the presidents. You choose whichever one you want. If if one of the presidents was your brother, you'd probably drop that name somewhere along in the conversation. Look how Jude, half-brother of Jesus. Jude, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. This book warns against false teachers and urges diligence in the perseverance of their faith, much like the other letters. False teachers were infiltrating the church. And Jude says, write this down, Jude says, contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you. Look at verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, So he's writing against false teachers and urging people to be uh, diligent in their faith. And finally, we come to Revelation. I'm going to summarize Revelation in five minutes. (laughs) So you know we're not going to really do much with that, but... That's because we're going to talk about Revelation in, in much detail later on. Revelation uh, is, an, is the, the fifth uh, category. We, we've concluded now the uh, general epistles, and now we're talking about a, apocalyptic literature. What does the word apocalyptic mean to you? When you say apocalyptic literature, what does that mean to you? End times. It talks about end times. History's end and the eternity that lies beyond history. Now hear that again. History's end and the eternity, the eternity that lies beyond history. That's the book of Revelation. It tells about how history ends and the eternity that lies beyond history. Of course, Revelation was written by John, the disciple of Jesus, while being exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Again, persecution. Persecution is woven throughout the New Testament. John exiled on the Isle of Patmos uh, for his faith in Christ. And the genre, of course, is that of of apocalypse. Uh, He gives a picture that is painted. I love this. I found this phrase somewhere. Uh, Write this down. 
John gives a picture that is painted with Old Testament brushes. The key to understanding this book is to understand that John paints a picture using Old Testament brushes. What what the Old Testament says relates to what John is going to be explaining in the New Testament, in the last book of the Bible. Uh, Put this on your notes. The message of Revelation is present and future. It is present and future. We must not ignore the present-day significance of this book, especially the letter to the, the letters to the seven churches. The letters to the seven churches are, are present uh, tense information, but it's also, of course, future, uh, a declaration of future events as well. God will judge the unrighteous and will establish his kingdom and ultimately will dwell with his people. Revelation was the last book written that's in our New Testament. Uh, written around A.D. 90. A.D. 90. And, and this is what I'll, my sentence to describe it, and then we'll, we will conclude. The last book of the Bible describes the last days of our world. I think it's significant. I think it's important. I think it's fitting that the last book of the Bible describes the last days of our world. And so would you go with me to Revelation uh, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, let's go to Revelation uh, 22. Verse 12. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Again, painting with Old Testament brushes there. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, what, church? Oh, come on now. The Spirit and the bride say, let let him who hears say, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Aren't you glad it's free? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. The story of the New Testament is the story of Jesus. The Gospels began telling us this is who Jesus is. Interwoven throughout the letters of Paul and the general epistles, the general letters, is more information about 
this is who Jesus is, and this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as you follow him, you're going to have to pay a price. And then in Revelation, it comes to an end where the Bible reminds us he's coming to set up a new heaven and a new earth. And we, his people, will be with him for all eternity. History's end. And what is beyond history is eternity with Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Father, for the story of the New Testament, the story of Jesus, the story of our Savior, the story that even though Satan has fought against your Son from the days of the Gospel, through the writings of Paul, through the writings of of the other authors, even though Christians were persecuted and and they were maligned and, and they experienced beatings and imprisonment, in spite of all of that, They hung on to their faith because they recognized that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. May we recognize in a fresh and new way the treasure we have. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.